We come to God's Word. If you've got a Bible, then we're going to be reading from Joshua chapter 10. Uh, it was the turn this morning of the children to be bringing our Bible reading to us. Uh, but in kind of looking at how child-friendly or otherwise uh, it was, particularly in terms of safeguarding Sunday, I thought maybe best to not have a child to read this. Uh, and it landed in my lap, and now I've just seen all the different words of the different names. So please don't send me any emails about all the wrong pronunciation, because that I'm sure will happen. Joshua chapter 10, lots of history, lots of long names, but this is God's word. So as well as this telling the story for what happened then, we're going to pray that God is going to speak through this passage into our situation in the here and now through Jack. Now, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and had become their allies. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city. Like one of the royal cities, it was larger than Ai and all its men were good fighters. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hohan, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Deborah, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I will give them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal... Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth Horon and cut them down all the way to Azekar and Makedah. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekar, the Lord hurled large hailstones on them and more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Son, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jasher. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down for about a full day. There's never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. Jack, I know you were thrilled to have that particular passage. Uh, Jack gave me the date for when he was available to come and speak this evening. He's going to be sharing more about all the stuff that he's doing out there. But for now, let's pray for Jack as he comes forward to bring God's word to us. Father God, we thank you for your word. Sometimes when we have a first read of it, we think, what is all that about? And where is the God of love in all of that? And what does that mean for me in this year, in 2019? We pray that you would speak through your servant Jack now. 
to us through your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Fabulous. Well, good morning, everybody. My wife... Is this, is this working here? Great. Okay. We're on. We're wired. Uh, my wife, uh, Claire, and I actually work in a part of the world which receives the Christmas boxes. Who would like to hear a story about that? Okay. So one year, all the kids in our city, a city of about 200,000, were expectantly waiting. Even Claire doesn't know the story, I don't think. Were waiting for their Christmas boxes. Very exciting. But disaster struck. Because the road from the capital to our city is about a 1,000 kilometers, and it is populated by lots of camels, and the truck bringing a whole city load of Christmas boxes hit a camel, came off the road, turned over, and spewed its contents all across, uh, well, actually very close to a village, uh, all across the ground. And that's a disaster. The, the kids in our city were waiting. There's not going to be any Christmas boxes Fortunately, no one was hurt, and fortunately, the children of that specific village where it crashed really saw Christmas come. (laughs) But one by one, this village, as you do in Africa, they pulled the truck up on its four uh, wheels again, they um, put all the Christmas boxes back inside, I think each of the kids in the village got one as a thank you, and it carried on and arrived safely in our city, and uh, it got distributed, and it was a lot of fun to see, especially because I grew up doing these Christmas boxes with mum and dad, and so to see it on the recipient end was just a lot of fun. So we work in Africa, that's just a little bit of a bracket before I hit the main topic, and for anyone wondering, this has nothing to do with safeguarding, okay, this is to do with Joshua 10, in case you were confused. Um... But this evening we will be sharing more about our life in Africa and um, you're all welcome to come at 6 o'clock to hear about that. For now, let's get to the order of business, which is... Let me just have a look. Okay, Brexit. Hold on. No, hold on. I'm sorry. We are actually looking at Joshua 10. I'm sure you'll be relieved that we're not going to be discussing Brexit. But it's still quite a challenging passage for us to look at. And I'll be honest, I think Roger did put me in it by giving me this passage I find this a really difficult part of scripture honestly I find it one of the hardest things I have to wrestle through and work through how can the God that I know and love the God who loves me the God who sent Jesus Christ who's given me such hope how can I reconcile that God with the violence and the bloodshed which we read in The Conquest of Canaan. Does anybody else, just be honest, does anybody else feel that a bit? Yeah? Okay. And thank you. I'm glad I'm not alone. And we've been reading through Joshua, and it's great to get spiritual lessons from it and talk about, yay, the walls of Jericho came down and all these things. But today, I want us to take stock and try to confront this question head on of how is it that this God of love is also seemingly a God of war? Would that that be a good thing to wrestle through, you think? Because it is a big question we have, and not just us, but non-Christians, especially those opposing Christianity, they will go to this very story in the Bible to question how it is that we can follow this God. 
How it is that we can follow this God who, who commanded genocide. Language like that has been used before to describe what is the conquest of a land. And it's true. The Israelites come out of being in slavery in Egypt. And God takes them all the way through the wilderness. And they arrive in the promised land. And they take possession of it. But it's not empty. There are people living there. And there's this huge conquest that takes place. And we need to wrestle with this. So today we're going to hit that topic head on. I'm sorry it can't be more inspirational and light-hearted, but it's important. And it's important because we're a people who believe the Bible is God's word and who take seriously what the Bible says. And we need to have confidence in what we've believed. That's what it means to be discipled, to become a disciple. It's to become confident. And if there are issues that we come across that we can't resolve, it won't help us just to say, oh, I'm sure it's fine, forget about it, let's not, you know, let's, no, we need to wrestle with this. We need to wrestle with this, and we need to try to resolve it, because um, suppressed doubts or unanswered questions, they do tend to surface again, and they can really undermine our confidence in God, undermine our faith, and so today, I hope together, we can look at this passage and look at this story and try to understand better what's going on here. And also where the hope is. How does that sound? Okay, so, very simple structure for today. First of all, we're going to look at the passage we just read. Then we're going to zoom out a little bit and look at the whole story of Israel going into Canaan. And then we're going to zoom in and look at ourselves. So, first of all, the passage itself. Let's set a context for it. Joshua leading the army of Israel has crossed over the Jordan River in a miraculous way, almost like Moses parted the Red Sea. The river of Jordan parts, and they cross into the land for the first time, and they come to Jericho, and they destroy Jericho, and they come to Ai, another city, and they destroy Ai. And then, what happens is very interesting. There's two different events that occur. Last week, we read about a tribe called the... Gibeonites, you were listening. Fantastic. This is going to go well. So the Gibeonites last week. And this week, we're looking at five kings, five Canaanite kings. And they respond in very different ways to what is going on. What we're told is that both of them feared greatly. Exactly the same words are used to describe how they responded to what was going on, to the Israelite army approaching. They feared greatly. In uh, chapter 9, verse 24, the Gibeonites said, we feared greatly for our lives when they explained what they did. In chapter 10, verse 2, Adonai Zedek, the kind of ringleader of these five kings, we're also told that he feared greatly. So there's this great fear about what's going on. And when confronted with that fear they both had to make a choice. And they responded very differently. I wonder how you would respond. The Gibeonites went to Joshua, admittedly deceptively, and they sought peace with Israel. And they found mercy. And in fact, they became part of the family of Israel. This week, we see a very different response to that same fear. We read that these Canaanite kings chose the opposite and they sought war with Israel. 
they created an alliance in verse 3. They agreed to punish Gibeon because they had betrayed them and gone over to the Israelites. They assembled a great army and they marched out against Gibeon. And there's this kind of drum roll. What's going to happen? There's a suspense. Because the Gibeonites, who have just duped Israel into making a covenant with them, their response is, oh my goodness me, let's go run and ask Israel to help us. So we read that Gibeon went up to Joshua and said, come, in verse 6, come up to us quickly and save us, help us, because the kings have joined forces against us. How is Israel going to respond? Are they going to be faithful to the promise they made? Well, as we see, they are. And not just Joshua, but God with Joshua raises up. And we're told in verse 8, the Lord says to Joshua, don't be afraid of them. I've given them into your hands. So this gives Joshua courage. Again, compare this with the last chapter where Israel did not go to the Lord. This time it seems that God is really with them in this. And we're told in verse 9, they march all night in verse 9. And they arrive, there's this element of surprise. And these five kings and their armies that have assembled are shocked by this arriving army. And not just that, but we're told that the Lord, in verse 10, throws them into confusion before Israel. It's a great battle. Many people die in the battle. And we're told the conclusion in verse 10, Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. This is a comprehensive victory for Israel. And not only that, but as the Canaanite soldiers are fleeing from a battle that they have lost, we read about these hailstones that come down from God. And we're told in verse 11 that more people die from the hail then were killed by the swords of the Israelites. And then, we're going to come back and reflect on these things, but then we read, last of all, in an amazing conclusion to the matter. We read that the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. In this passage, we see the culmination of what's going on. And we see that this isn't merely the whim of Israel and of Joshua. This is something that God is undertaking. This is something that God is leading. This is why we can't just say, oh, it was probably just Joshua who wanted to go and kill lots of people. No. This is something that God is doing. That's hard to hear, isn't it? But I'm I'm trying to say it to us as it is, because I want us to confront the reality of the text, so that rather than just suppressing our, our kind of anxiousness, we actually look at it head on, because I believe there is hope. I believe there is answers to some of these uncomfortable things we're feeling. And rather than just hide from them, I want us to just open them up and look at them. What we do see at the end here, and I just want to draw out some amazing truths about God that we see in that conclusion. We see that our God is a powerful God. He's the God over all creation. He's the God who can make a sun stand still in the sky. He's the God who can bring hailstones down. He's the God who created everything. We see the power of God in this story. And secondly, 
we see God's willingness to listen to our prayers. Because it's very clear here, we're told that this was a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Our God is a powerful God, but he's also a personal God. He's a God who comes near. He's a God who is involved in the story, who's engaged in our humanity. And finally, we see that God is actually at the middle of this story. God is the hero of the Bible. God is the hero of this story from creation to the end of time. God is at the center of it all. And actually, if we need reminding of that anymore, flick back a couple of chapters in your Bible to Joshua 5, and there's this story of the angel of the Lord meeting with Joshua, and Joshua says, are you for us or are you against us? And what does the angel respond? Neither. I am for God. I am with God. And there's this reminder, and this is what we have to do here. We need to kind of take a step back and see things from God's perspective rather than from us. Because when we're down in the dirt, in, in the day-to-day, we see things from a certain perspective, but we need to take a step back and see what God is doing from start to finish. And then we need to place this story into that great story of what God is doing in this world. So, we looked at this story in Joshua. I'm just going to put, give a pause there. And we're now going to just zoom out and look at the wider question of what's going on. In Joshua 10, we read that the southern part of Canaan is taken by Israel. In 11 and 12, chapter 11 and 12, we read that the northern part of, is, of, of Canaan is occupied by Israel. This is a military campaign. And not only that, but this is a military campaign that God has commanded Israel to pursue. In Deuteronomy 7, and again in Deuteronomy 20, long before any of this happens, God says to the Israelites to utterly destroy the people in Canaan, to occupy their land. Now, we need to recognize these Israelites are not acting on their own. They're being led by God, and yet they're doing really difficult things. So my question is, why is God acting in this way? We need to have confidence in the character of God. And so when we see God doing something that jars with us, we need to wrestle that through. So I want us to explore what is going on here. And to do that, first of all, I want to share some qualifications, which I think will be helpful to explore exactly what is going on, then there will be a sobering exploration into actually what God is doing here. So, the qualifications, first of all. Here's just a bit of history, a bit of context, as we read our Bible. As we know, the Bible is not this book that descended from heaven. Muslims believe that of the Quran. We don't believe that. The Bible was written in history by people, for people, about people, about all that God is doing, but it's written through human agents. And so we, as we look at the Bible, we can't purely read it as from God. We have to read it as from God through a specific culture and into a specific time. And we need to understand those things as well as to a specific audience in order to make sense of what's going on. So a good example is here. The genre of Joshua is that it is a military history. 
And it's not the only one. There's lots of other books written around this time that describe the conquests of nations against other nations, of tribes against other tribes. It's, it's Near Eastern literature. And so we can actually look and we can understand a bit better some of the ways, the genre of what's being written here. And one thing we see when we do that is that it was very common, in fact, it was part of the way these were written, to use what's called hyperbole, exaggeration, to use language which was very emotive and very overwhelming to describe what was going on. A little bit like your favourite sports team wiping out the opposition. We annihilated them. Clearly that's not exactly what's going on, you would hope. It's emotive, strong language to describe a success, a victory, an important moment. It's a way in which we talk. Now, that is partly what is going on here. And furthermore, we also need to understand the part of the world we're in. It is a very rural part of the world. And I should say, since Roger um, condemned me to talk on this, uh, I have taken a lot of time wrestling with it because it matters to me a lot. And so I'm sharing with you a lot of what I've been wrestling with, learning about, studying, and I share it with you because I found it really helpful. So yes, there's language which is very exaggerating, but it doesn't, it doesn't stop it from actually... Something happened, right? And you can exaggerate, but that doesn't remove the event itself. You know, Arsenal still got thrashed if we wiped them out, didn't they? Right, Roger? So, secondly, as we look at the lay of the land at the time when this happened, it was a almost entirely rural society. People lived in very small villages. They were farmers. It wasn't big urban centers like today, cities with big populations and the majority of people living in cities. Actually, it was predominantly rural. And the cities of the time actually functioned as political and military centers. They were used to collect taxes, to house the army. They were effectively barracks. And there were very few civilians that actually lived in the cities. In fact, the term city, we shouldn't hear that as we hear city today. The cities of the time were very small. And we know this because we have archaeology that shows us the walls of the city are very small. And when we first hear this, we hear that the whole city was wiped out. And that can be overwhelming. For me, it's been helpful to realize that the word city doesn't actually mean the whole, you know, a huge urban population. It actually mainly means um, the military and the political hub of the land. In fact, archaeology has confirmed, specifically regarding Jericho and Ai, these two cities which we read about, which were attacked and destroyed, that there were actually no civilian populations, most likely, that lived within those cities, those forts, those citadels. So, again, this doesn't remove the issue entirely, but it's helpful to see that what we're looking at is a primarily military conquest to military cities. In fact, in Deuteronomy, the first command that God gave to Israel about conquest in the land, he actually says, whenever you're involved in any wars, this is in Deuteronomy 20, seek to make peace. And then he qualifies it and he says, except 
for this one time when I give you possession of the land which I have promised to you. And in that event, and I quote, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. He clarifies he's talking about the cities. He's not talking about the entire population. And this is a helpful clarification for me. It's also helpful to see this is a once at one time event. That we read it in the Bible does not mean that this is something that will be replicated time and again. It is a unique event in history and God is doing something very particular. And the final, I hope, helpful kind of qualification here is that we read, and this is just an example to prove the point. We read at the end of this chapter, and this chapter goes on to describe the conquest of the whole land, that he left no survivor but he utterly destroyed all who breathed. That's what we read. Now, later on in Joshua, for example in Joshua 23, at the beginning of Judges, we read that there's loads and loads and loads of Canaanites in the land. Now that seems to be a contradiction if we're going to read that very, very literally. For me, it's a helpful clarification that when we read that he utterly destroyed all who breathed, we're not talking about the fact this land was wiped out entirely. Because clearly they were still there at the end of the story. Okay, deep breath. I'm so sorry we have to talk about such a serious thing. I'm not sorry. I'm sympathetic to the fact this is heavy and hard. So, I hope that, I don't know, paints a slightly clearer picture about what's going on. Right, now for the sobering side. God, it is true notwithstanding those qualifications, leads Israel into battle to overcome a people and inhabit their land. And to make sense of this, we can't merely look at it as being God providing Israel with a home, which is what's happening. We also have to see that God is judging Canaan. There is a judgment that's going on here. That's what the Bible tells us. In fact, Several times, and I'll just pick one of them, in Deuteronomy 9, we're told it is because of the wickedness and detestable practices of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. That's Deuteronomy 9. It is because of their wickedness and of their detestable practices. Because, I don't know about you, but when I read this story, I'm inclined to see an innocent land, humbly living happily in the world, at peace with everything, and this brutal, aggressive Israel come in and cause trouble. That is just not a fair picture about what's going on. In fact, even by ancient standards, the Canaanites were a hideously nasty bunch of people. They were really depraved. They were really evil, if I can use strong language like that. And I'm not saying this. The Bible tells us this. Historical record tells us this. Their culture was grossly immoral, and they were completely opposed to God. And their idolatry included adultery, paedophilia, sex with animals, incest, and worst. Worst of all, it included, and very famously, massive amounts of child sacrifice. Gulp. Archaeology... Again, this is confirmed by archaeology. It confirms that the numbers of children... I'm really sorry to share this. It's a heavy topic. But the number of children that would be burned to death by the Canaanites would sometimes number in the thousands. Okay, this is not 
a people who are innocent and peaceful. This is a people who have turned away from God in the most awful of ways. And God cannot bear to see this people that he has created in his image, who have fallen, he cannot bear to see such things carry on. And so, he sends Israel in there, and the conquest of the land, it's not merely a home being provided for Israel. It's a judgment of the evil that's going on in that land. And so, as we look at these passages, we need to see them in terms of judgment, in terms of human sin. And this is where we need to change our perspective. Because we are a people who have turned from God. And by we, I mean the Canaanites, but I now mean all of us. And over centuries, Canaan, this people, had become more and more and more depraved, rejecting of good, godly, loving ways. And God had had enough. And what we see here is sobering for me because I know and I believe that actually there is still sin in the world and God who wants to see that brought right and there will still be a judgment for all of us. It's a very sobering thought. It's a very uncomfortable thought. So we must see it in terms of judgment. But we must also see it in terms of salvation. Why has God chosen Israel? He didn't choose Israel because he loved them and he hated the rest of the world. He chose Israel to be his means of bringing blessing to the world, of restoring the world to the way that he created, the good world that he created. Israel was his means of salvation. And actually, part of the reason why the Canaanites were destroyed is because he, and this happens time and again in Scripture, he's so concerned about the Canaanites' practices, their evil practices, ending up corrupting Israel, the people who he is using as an avenue for salvation for the world. And he has good reason to be, because that is exactly what happens, is it not? Israel come into into Canaan, and over years, and we just need to read the history books of Judges through to Chronicles to see just how much Israel turns away from God and is actually lured to the gods of the Canaanites and to the practice of the Canaanites. I find it amazing that God, in, I think it's Leviticus, commanded Israel that they should not conduct child sacrifice. Why else would he need to warn Israel of that if if they weren't at risk of doing exactly that as they came into a land which practiced such detestable things? And let us also remember that this comes at great cost to God. There's this verse in Ezekiel 18.23. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Sovereign Lord. And it's implying, no, I do not. Rather, I am not pleased. Am I, rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Okay. 
We've looked at Joshua 10, this passage. We've looked at the conquest as a whole. I now want to bring it into land and look at ourselves. This is heavy stuff. I'm sorry, I can't be more lighthearted. This is the passage that we must look at, and this is God's word, which we must wrestle with. And I hope, actually, this can be a wake-up call for all of us. Because it tells us just how concerned God is about the state of his world. He cannot, he's not the distant God who looks at the terrible acts and atrocities occurring in the world and folds his arms and says, I don't care. He's the God who, from the beginning, has been seeking out a way to restore the world to himself. To heal the world of its brokenness. Take a step back and let me ask you, who is on trial here? Who is on trial? Because I see that there's two competing perspectives at work here. Either we can define the terms of the world and then hold God to account by our terms, or God defines the terms of the world and we are held to account by his terms. Is God being held to our standards? Or are we being held to God's standards? Are we playing by God's rules? Or is God playing by our rules? Are we judging God? Or is God judging us? I think how we interact with this story actually tells us a lot about the perspective we hold. Our reaction to this story either tells us something very worrying about God, from one perspective, or it tells us something very worrying about ourselves from the other. Now, I can't determine for you which response you must take. Each of us must wrestle with this for himself, herself. But I do want to just unpack and explore two common responses. First of all, there's a person that says, blimey, all this talk of violence and sin and trouble, things aren't that bad, are they? Surely things aren't that bad. I mean, come on. Don't be ridiculous. Well, the Bible tells us that they are. In fact, we're told in Genesis 6 that this is before the story of Noah, that all the inclinations of the human heart were only evil all the time. That was the state the world had got to there. And we're told again, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 3, that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And also just just to share a few, just to explore a bit the situation for us here in the world today. We often talk about the fact that, you know, in, in the past there were these barbaric, troublesome people, but now we've been enlightened and we're modern and we're civilized and we're, well, are we? In the last century there were 108 million people killed in war. This is our civilized world. One in four women is raped or sexually abused in their lifetime, globally. In many European countries, one in five men reports to have visited a prostitute. There are 210 million orphans in the world today, and 15% will commit suicide before they turn 18. Did you know that 10 times more women are trafficked into brothels each year 
than there were slaves transported to America in the height of the slave trade. We need to be sobered by the reality that there are a lot of things that are not going right with the world. And we can paint it to look pretty, and we can avoid it, and we can hide from it, but I want to lovingly share this reality. And not just the world, but ourselves. Because we just need to look about us, even within our family or our workplace. There's broken relationships. There's bitterness within family. There are divisions in society. There's racism, us and them attitudes. This is the reality. And not even that, we can look at our own heart and see that in our heart there exists these feelings that we cannot explain and do not like. This anger sometimes, or frustration, or bitterness, or lust, jealousy, pride. There's a reality that something is majorly out of sync with the world. And I would contend that the reason that is so is because only in Jesus Christ can the world be set right. And that's fundamentally why I follow him. Because I don't believe there's any hope for us as a people for the condition of the human heart except in Christ. And I believe that what God was doing and is doing in his great story in history is creating a way for us to be set right where things have been so wrong. So, the first response is, well, things aren't that bad. And I would just contend and say, well, I think they are. The other common response I would say is, well, I don't think I like this kind of God. It, feel, it doesn't feel cozy enough. And again, I, I, I share these things because I wrestle with them myself. I can't love a God who has done something like that. Now, I want to put it on his head. Because I know, and the Bible tells us, that God has loved us even though we have done far worse. Have you ever considered that in the beginning of Genesis, we read that the wages of our sin is death. When in the garden, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God, the curse is that we will die. Have we ever considered why it is that we are alive? If the wages of sin is death, if our sinfulness means we should die, how is it that we have not been judged? It is only by God's kindness and patience and forbearance that he has not judged us. He suspended that sentence. We're told in 1 Peter 3.9, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It is a marvel that God should be so kind as to not judge us immediately, but to suspend that sentence for a reason. And the reason is this. God's agenda has always been that we might be restored to him, that we might be set right with him. Israel was meant to be that light to the nations. In fact, even at their founding... They're told that they will be a priesthood to all nations. And later on they're told, it is a thing too small to stay in Israel. You will be my witness to the ends of the earth. Israel is meant to be God's avenue to set the world right. And Israel loses its way. But out of Israel, God raises one up. Who comes to earth. Who dwells among us. Who teaches us the truth. Who reveals God to us. Not just reveals God to us, but who is himself 
the very Son of God. And who sees that sentence of death on each of us. And out of his great love for us, even though we had nothing meriting it, he died and died for us that we might live. So that that sentence on us might no longer be there. So that we might be free. He suffered that we might be free. God so loved the world that he gave his son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We've got to see these stories in Joshua in light of the amazing work God is doing in a world which is so far gone, but which he has not lost hope in, and his marvelous work in making a way through. This story raises the stakes for us. God is still expanding his kingdom. There's no longer military conquest. But God is calling us to repent, to become part of his family, to live his way. Just as he did the Canaanites, God will judge the whole earth one day. But there is a sure hope for those who turn to God and trust their lives to Jesus. Okay, a final provoking question for you all. Coming all the way back to Joshua 10. Who are we in the story of Joshua 10? If if, if we look at that story and what God's doing in that story, who are we? Well, we might like to think that we are the Israelites. Those people of God. I would suggest that it's a far truer picture to say we are those Canaanites who are opposed to God. Before, before we choose to follow God, we are those Canaanites. We've sinned. We're opposed to God. And just like them, we should greatly fear. Not in a oh, fear in that sense that we fear God because he is good and because he is because he's calling us to him. And we too, just like the Canaanites, face a decision. Like the Canaanite kings, those five kings, we could oppose God and we could face the judgment. But remember well that we can, like the Gibeonites, find a way to receive peace and receive mercy. And God has made that way for us. He has made it public. Christ died for us. He died in our place. He took God's judgment intended for us. Our sin has been paid for. We, like the Gibeonites, can be brought into the family of God. We All that judgment that God would have on us is no longer there because Christ has paid for it. I love that song that Roger mentioned. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Now we sing that. But I, for one, when I, when I read passages like this and I see more clearly the seriousness of sin and I see more dramatically the amazing work of Christ, I find I sing it in a fresh way. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. He is our way to be right with God. And God is making a way for all of us. He invites us now, like the Gibeonites, to make peace. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word, uh, and I thank you for the hard parts. 
Uh, And I pray, God, today that you would open our eyes to see you more truly from your perspective. And God, open our hearts to receive you and to live our lives in light of all that you have done for us in Christ to save us from the judgment which is due to us. And God, I pray today that there would be many here who would rejoice in your marvellous work on the cross that has made us new, for we have been crucified with Christ and we no longer live, but Christ now lives in us. We are a new creation and we are loved and adopted and holy and blameless in his family, not because we have done right, but because Christ has accomplished the most marvellous of ransoms for our sin and has made a way. Amen.